Welcome to the closed session, how to get paid in Silicon Valley, with your host, Tom Chavez and Vivek Vidya. Hello, and welcome to episode nine of season three of the closed session. All right. Well, before we were starting, you, you called it season nine, but it's actually, we're not that old. Well, well you are, but I mean, we, it's only three I was seasons. just o- old or efficient, you know? Two sides of the same coin. I like how you try to sell that. Mm-hmm. Nice. Mm-hmm. It's, so this is a special episode, yeah? It is a biggie. What are we going to do this time? It's a little different from what we've done in the past, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I think for our audience, uh, we have these community calls every two weeks or so, fortnightly, as I like to say. That's fancy. Uh, yeah. Um, community calls at Superset. At Superset, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, every two weeks. And... Uh, some oftentimes we'll invite guests for fireside chats, and uh, recently, I think the last uh, uh, episode or last community call of uh, 2022, we had a very special guest, and uh, it was uh, Arthur Patterson uh, of Excel, formerly of Excel. Arthur Patterson, who looms large for you and me, right? He's mm. been an investor in both of our prior projects. He's We've been very lucky to have his involvement in many of the build-outs and things that we're doing today at Superset. He is one of the OGs of Silicon Valley Venture Capital. Indeed, indeed. So we had him, Tom interviewed him uh, at this fireside chat at our Superset offices, and we thought it'd be be fun for us to play snippets from that uh, fireside chat and then give our perspective and commentary on what we learned and what we took away from uh, from that chat. Let's do it. And, you know, if you wanted to see the whole thing, I think we're going to take snippets or even extended versions of this and be blasting them out on different channels. But this is the super premium edited perfect version of the goodies. The highlights reel. Highlights. There you go. Plus, plus. Let's do it. So let's jump in here. And the first topic that uh, we're going to be showing you is is a wonderful sort of vignette from Arthur on the early days of venture capital and what it was like to start Excel. Here we go. So let's let's dive in here, Arthur. I wanted to go back to the earlier days of of Excel. You co-founded Excel with Jim Schwartz. What year was that? Nineteen end of eighty three. Eighty three. I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about the two or three traits that you looked for in hiring at Excel in those early days. You got to put it back in the context of that time. You know, I got into venture business in 71 after working for the Treasury Department for a few years. And, and uh, so Jim Schwartz and I had then had a firm as of 78 uh, called Adler and & Company. And, and the venture business, it was sort of, you had the nifty 50 and in 69, it had a little uh, a high, hot IPO market around semiconductors. And, and then uh, nifty 50 and 72, 73. But nifty 70, 50? I don't know what nifty 50 is. That was when, was uh, after the bubble in uh, 69, then, the, then there were selected 50 companies of which Xerox and Kodak okay. and were the ones for all the institutions to own that were the growth companies. And, uh, and, uh, but underneath that, there was a sort of small venture business going on. It was going Heiser that spun out of Allstate and raised a fund, which was the first fund. It was kind of $80 million fund. Um, and he started Amdahl, among other things. Um, 
it's funny he had uh, he was an investment guy, but when he formed uh, Heiser, he hired all operating people, and then sure enough, two or three later, he had a, com a portfolio of companies with his guys all running them, <laughs> as opposed to the investments that he'd been making at mm -hmm. uh, at for Allstate. And uh, so in '74, the, the, the business virtually stopped. Tandem was only the only deal of note that even got done that year, wow. and there were. Um, and uh, and I actually uh, talked the bank in it, letting me buy the public companies because they were they were there and available. There weren't any private deals, and they were very cheap. And uh, so it gave me uh, uh, a lot of experience in public market investing too. Hmm. So then from '74 through um, the Citicorp portfolio at that point, which was sort of the index fund of the business, because we participated in every uh, a lot of the good uh, investments, Federal Express, everything. Um, and uh, that was 50% underwater at that point in time. <laughs> and by, uh, uh, by 78, though, that whole portfolio was had compounded at 30% from 68 or 69 when they started the thing. And so that it, you know, the venture business really got going in about 78, you could begin to start a new fund and raise money. No one could really before that. There were a few oddball uh, little funds like Kleiner Perkins who were started in 72 or three, but they didn't have any money and, they, hmm. and hardly hardly did anything. And uh, so then, then um, and, but by, and so we had Adler and Company, we did about 50 deals the next uh, five years. And uh, so you're at Adler and Company, what, what years? That that was. That was seventy eight to eighty three. Okay, just before Excel. And um, and uh, then we could raise uh, off of that record. We we're able to raise Axel. Uh, back to your point about what kind of person we're looking for. Right. You know, it's pretty early business, and uh, and if you uh, depends on what. You're, what you're trying to do in your portfolio in those in those days, and uh, there was no growth investing going on at all, and you hire very different people for early stage investing versus later stage investing. It's just completely different business, and uh, so we would be looking for early stage guys at that stage, and 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 the market was uh, was was. Uh, was in relative terms today, tiny. Uh, mm -hmm. But most of the firms like uh, KP and Sequoia and, and Mayfield gotten started during that mm -hmm. uh, 78 uh, right. uh, period. Um, and so, so Excel is a relative upstart. Right? Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. And, but we had the good fortune of, uh, of uh, starting a new fund at a time when the market had gotten to a scale where uh, you could begin to specialize. Uh, there were, uh, when we were running Citicorp, we did a lot of all the technical deals. We also did sort of paper company buyouts and and, uh, and other things like that. So did, uh, Jim Schwartz did an uh, oil well uh, services company. And, but by but the, the the number of companies by '83 had gotten to the point where you could specialize, but it's very hard for existing firms to specialize because the partners uh, had all done a variety. Of, they did a medical deal, and a semiconductor deal, and a software deal, and a, and a couple of other oddball deals, and and in the in the portfolios. And you can't change the relationships in early stage investing between partners. You can't say one guy takes all the medical deals, one guy takes all right. semi deals. So 
everybody else was just very spread. And so uh, we said, well, you know, uh, Bain says that people with higher market shares do best. And so let's just choose a couple of areas. Jim Schwartz had done several notable uh, communication deals like Ungerman Bass. And I'd done a few software deals as, as well as medical deals and semiconductor deals and everything else. Yeah. Um, and I said, I saw like software. And so I was going to do the software. He was going to do the, And then we hired a, a third partner who was going to do medical deals a little bit later. And um, by virtue of focusing and only doing those deals, it then uh, allowed you to say, now, what are going to be the best software deals or what are going to be the best uh, telecom deals? And we could take a much more systematic approach uh, to thinking about the business, which other people with their portfolios all bogged down in, in such a variety of things across the partners really weren't in a position to do. And so we, were, we took advantage of the fact that we you know, were a startup and we had a clean start, mm. nothing like a clean start. Mm. And uh, as we see every day and... Uh, so uh, the prepared mind actually came from sort of derivatively, we, we were able to think about what we were, what sectors we really wanted to be in and who we should get to know and everything in a way that uh, people previously hadn't. And that, that we began to articulate it as a prepared mind. Right. And we so, would say, you know, the test of the prepared mind is that when that entrepreneur walks in the door, uh, you know, 90% of his business, you just haven't found that you, the entrepreneur is critical, but and he's going to supply that critical 10% of the idea, hmm. but you know, 90% of it, or, or you're not going to either, uh, bond with that entrepreneur or recognize the idea, uh, quickly and move ahead with it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I think my best deal was, uh, it was, uh, it was it was later, but it had been turned down by all the other venture guys who uh, said, "Well, we might be interested, but we've got to you've got to get a decent CEO in here." And, and because I'd been in the business and and in the mm. um, I'd been in the internet uh, services business, I knew how important the billing systems were, and so um, you know I had a prepared mind that recognized right. the opportunity that that other people got stuck on the red herrings of mm -hmm. uh, of you know it's not the right management and whatnot. Um, right, that was portal. So, it was portal. Yeah, yeah. thousand to one. Thousand to one. That's better than a <laughs> stick in the eye. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, that was fun. You know, funny for us to be listening to that, Vivek as Arthur refers to this oddball company called Kleiner Perkins. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> when we came up in the super late 90s, early aughts, Kleiner Perkins was ruling the roost. Yeah, it loomed large as it still continues to do. Uh, mm -hmm. Though without the same luster, let's yeah, say, as yeah. you know, the, the dominance that they exerted in that time. Yep. Uh, but, you know, the, the other thing that really strikes me here, and that I, I think it's an idea that we're carrying forward for sure in our own work, is this idea of specialization, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So we, like Arthur, I mean, and it's it's just one of those generalists. I, I don't know how many generalists survive for the long haul, right? They seem to have their moments, but what feels more enduring is the ability to, to focus on a particular set of issues and challenges and to play to your strengths as we try to do at Superset in the realm of data management. We hew to this data-driven thesis. Feels like a lesson we implicitly learned from Arthur, no? No, exactly, exactly. The other thing that kind of struck out for me was in the early to mid-80s, the definition of software, what constituted software, 
is so di- must have been so different right or, or compared to now right like now software is so huge as compared to what it must have been in the uh in the early to mid 80s but and that's that's what's so cool about software and computer science mm-hmm. right and ai mm-hmm. um computer science as a field software engineering as a discipline are pretty fascinating in the way that they continually reinvent themselves right when you went to college you were learning C, right? Mm-hmm. When I came up, I was I had summer jobs programming on base in Albuquerque at Sandia and Kirtland Air Force Base in Fortran. Fortran yeah. yeah. <laughs> were you a Fortran program too? I, I actually ended up learning quite a lot of Fortran yeah. because of my focus in math and medical right. computing. Yeah. Right. But uh, how much Fortran C programming is going on these days? Very little. Flat almost close to zero, right? Yeah. I well, mean, I'm actually I think it's it's uh commercially, I don't know how much Fortran programming ever went on. As, uh, but I'm sure like in numerical computation labs or whatever, they were still doing Fortran programming. They may still be doing it, who knows? Right. Or maybe Python's taken over. Hmm. Um, but, uh, but the point is, what, what was when Arthur's talking about software back in the 80s, and not to sound too snooty about it, but it just sounds kind of adorable mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> relative to what we're doing today. Yeah. But again, that's the magic of computer science yeah. as, as a field that continually embraces the new, continually embraces... Um, new frameworks, new possibilities. It doesn't get sort of hidebound and stuck yeah. in old patterns. Your car is a big computer. That's right. Right? And uh, the other thing that kind of st- struck me is as you're talking about the early days of Excel is they think of, or he, they thought of Excel as a startup, which, which you know, it sure. is. Yeah, well, it was. I don't, it's kind of funny to talk about Excel as a startup today. Maybe if they're scrapping and doing it right, they're still thinking of themselves as, as in that way. But most observers would look at Excel and say, no, 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 that's now, a behemoth now. Of course, now, yeah, totally a behemoth. But it's it's instructive for me also as we think of superset, right? Like there's always this, we, we, we like to think about, we like to tell people that we're company builders with capital, operators with capital, but there is the the fund aspect of superset as well. And, and uh, it is a startup. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, focusing on, like you said, data-driven thesis, and we're we're very intentional about what problems we want to we want to go solve, and companies we want to build, etc. So, in that regard, uh, a venture capital firm in the early early days of its existence is very much like a right, startup, right? And you know, this, these were the buccaneers of VC, mm-hmm. right? Sequoia, Excel was the relative upstart. I guess KP mm-hmm. was at it, but it was still it's kind of just again adorable. To yeah. think about the hundreds or thousands of funds and, and venture capital firms out there now, yeah, relative to the whatever five to ten, correct, you had going back then. All right, let's let's uh, tee up the next clip here. This is um, actually it, before we do that, yeah. I think this this uh, uh, I think it's let's talk about this whole concept of the prepared mind, right? And uh, um, we we also benefit. We've learned uh, about it from Arthur. And it's, I find it fascinating when he says that prepared mind means that you know 90% of the entrepreneur's business when they walk in your door. And it's, it's uh, 10%, the, the extra 10% is what the entrepreneur adds in terms of special sauce or, or know-how or whatever. That which, results- is, which is not to say that the entrepreneur is fungible. Correct. As many, um, unfortunately, snooty venture capital funds fell into the, into the trap of believing. Correct. Correct. So I, I thought that was that was fascinating, and that's something that we've internalized too in the solution memos that we write. 
at super that's our way of of being prepared for what lies ahead when we go on when we embark on this company building journey for a new company that's right the prepared mind by the way for our listeners is is a nod back to luis pastor who said that chance favors the prepared mind mm-hmm. in our notes here we have the uh, original quote in french would you care to read it for us uh no tom oh, okay my if my wife were here she would have read it but uh i would not uh insult the french language by trying to read french over that's here. that's probably a good idea mm-hmm. in american the way we say it is chance favors the prepared mind mm-hmm. all right okay shall we tee up the second clip let's do it this is on time horizons in venture capital here we go working in in early stage deals it takes a, it takes potentially i mean i'm in one i've been in for 23 years now Eight is a more reasonable number, and uh, five if if you're lucky. But uh, um, by the way, if I can say it, among venture capitalists, you're well, you're unique in lots of ways, but especially that way, because I think one could argue that many venture capitalists have very short attention spans. Twenty three years. <laughs> yeah, well, that was I didn't mean it to be. 20. Well, number <laughs> two, but. but i think it's safe to say also many many others in your cohort would be like okay somebody else please bust these rocks please handle this I'm, but I'm but it also fits with your perspective different firms have different mm-hmm. approaches to, to this mm-hmm. the um uh so uh, we being new in axel mm-hmm. uh and being focused by industry we took an approach to you know if we thought we had the thing pretty well dialed in as a good idea now it's very it, the you have to get a tailwind in these markets sure. it's not just the entrepreneur right. and uh, so but the timing of that is really hard to predict and you know you can see it coming but uh geez when's it going to really you know click into the enterprise market or whatever right. and uh, and so we were very stick to it in our projects and would carry them a lot longer and uh, we'd have uh, much higher percentage wins but they some as sometimes they took quite a while uh somebody like uh say Sequoia who'd been in the business for a long time or KP could take the approach that um you know we've got a better supply than other people because we've got the relationships and the franchise and mm-hmm. and uh, they don't perform out they go right and uh and they were known to be quote ruthless and but you know the company the entrepreneur didn't perform and so um why they, did you why did you stick to it what why stick to it Like you well did. because you you have to you if you feel your whether you have to judge whether you're making progress or not and and at that point in time every year you had to go out and raise money from somebody and that was a third party mm-hmm. and you know, some companies you know just stay on that initial uh product plan and 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 excel spreadsheet and uh, but it's a very small percentage of them and mm-hmm. uh like 10 maybe maybe 20% and Let them wander, and they 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 may be making progress, but the market's evolving a little bit differently than you thought, and you're having to move. Software, particularly, can be malleable. That's why we gave we pretty much gave up hardware projects because boy, if you if you don't get the get it right day one, you know, right. <laughs> then there's no money for the next generation. Right. And whereas software, you could move around quite a bit. That's but, what we you know, do. Each year, you had to prove that. what you were doing was the leader of the this new opportunity right and you know the quite the criteria changed a bit and, and but you had you know earnest good 
intelligent, capable people working on the idea, trying to prove it out and prove on it. And, and so they weren't making progress quite the way you intended, but um, I mean, I've had some that like, there was Veritas, where, which was a, um, a tandem competitor and uh, in nonstop computing. Mm -hmm. And there um, got down to where we, we raised in those days, what would have been a billion dollars uh, today uh, to build this company. And, and uh, we ran the Korean <laughs> social security system and some other big apps, but, but hardware was going out of fashion. And, and when we got to a meeting, we only had about a million in the bank left over. And we figured we had to sell the company not once, but about 10 times to raise the amount of money necessary to <laughs> build it. And he said, uh, I said, don't you, you guys have rebuilt the Unix operating system to have, uh, um, uh, to be able to operate in this uh, distributed environment. And uh, don't we have any software in there? And uh, I've been sort of a student of the public software companies that were um, selling components going into IBM. And, and, and they said, yeah, well, the file system, we really did a lot of great work on the file system. And so we reinvented the company around the file system. And Joe Schoendorf went off and got AT&T that owned Unix to declare it to be the uh, high performance file system for Unix. And, you know, that turned into a $40 billion capitalization from, so, but you don't want to have to do that too often. From zero to hero, <laughs> from the guttermost to the uttermost, right? A million dollars left in the bank but to 40. But so, so back on the on people. So uh, I think you have to you have to have people that, that are sufficiently curious and interested in the business and keep their their heads down. It's working on early stage deals is kind of lonely. So even if you're in a partnership, it's your deal mm -hmm. and it's your problem, and you've got to keep coming back to your partners and telling them, "Oh no, we should keep supporting it." And still, I know it's not happening quite the way I I, I know I told you it was that, but now it's got this. <laughs> this and, time I'm and, serious. And, and you're so you're responsible. There's right. you know we always have a uh, quote backup guy at Axel, but he can get pretty far back. <laughs> <laughs> when they're not working, and, and uh, so keep him uh, in the basement. As I say, maybe they'll go straight up, uh, and you can recruit a lot of fantastic people to it. We did it at Portal. Um, yeah, got, uh, but um, frequently you're just working away right. on this thing with the entrepreneur, trying to uh, help them figure it out and help them raise money and help them with the. Find the strategy and right. recruiting people, and so it's a sort of long, lonely process. It might go on for you know, five, eight years or more, and and you have to have individuals that um, are curious enough and just sort of hum and don't have too much hubris, and because it's the other guy that's always yeah. be responsible. And you right. and if you go in and grab the grab the steering wheel, I mean, you're dead. You right. know? <laughs> wow, a lot of good stuff there. What's your immediate reaction? The first. I mean, lots of lots of immediate reactions. Actually, I'll try to prioritize the the first one is this whole idea of tailwinds, or as some people like to say, right place, right time. Mm -hmm. And we <clears throat> def definitely benefited from that at Crux, right? Because uh, as we had said along the way, what we were doing at Crux, people had tried that before, and it didn't uh, it didn't work the way it did for us because of this confluence of so many things, which collectively could be referred to as tailwinds right. for our business. There have been at least six to eight other players yeah. before us. Yeah. 
By the way, people forget there were six to eight other search engines Correct. before Google came along. By the way, Crux wasn't the same kind of outcome as Google, obviously, but the pattern holds up, right? It's you, you gotta you gotta believe that you have to have some tailwinds and a little contrarianism to believe that okay, number nine could be the yeah. one. Yeah. And then also related to that is is even when you have the tailwinds, it's not like it's a slam dunk. Right? It still takes time. Uh five, eight, ten. 23 is just unimaginable from where I'm sitting right now. I don't know how that would work, but, but, uh, uh, so you, 23 years, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was actually, uh, no, long time ago. Um, so the, 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 the takeaway for me over there was, is another interesting one, which is you have to have the right people who are curious and find joy in solving these these problems that keep coming up. One of our memes uh, for company building along the way has been finding joy in repetition. Mm-hmm. It's a quote of, of a Prince song from Graffiti Bridge, mm-hmm. joy in repetition. What Arthur is calling us to do, and, it, and we've certainly found this to be the case for ourselves, is if you need a quick hit, if you're looking for immediate gratification, none of this is for you. Yeah. Right? It is a long, pride-swallowing, soul-sucking siege. Yeah. Every one of these build-outs. And you got to be... You have to find, to your point, enough joy and just in intellectual nourishment yep. in the uncovering of each one of these little puzzles on your way to solving the uber grand puzzle. Yeah, and I think what we, what I've learned, I should say, make it make it personal, is that in it, what 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 appears to you to be repetitive or even oh, I'm just doing the same shit different day kind of thing, if you take a step back and you you look for interesting, challenging problems to to solve. Even in that kind of process of doing the same thing over and over again, there's plenty of problems to be found. That's right. Um, and that's, I think that's what brings me joy. That's what brings you joy right. in this company building journey that, that we're always on. Right. If you're bored, well, either you, you made, there was a selection problem at the very beginning where mm-hmm. you shouldn't have signed up for any of this. Or in a couple of moments, I think we've seen it, where people just lose their spark, they lose their, their mm-hmm. mojo. And then, okay, you know, sadly, it's time, it's also time to just peace out. If you lose that basic spark, it's time to just hang it up. And the final thing, kind of like wrapping this up, is I, I like when he, when he talks about this notion of what I take away as personal causal responsibility. It's, you know, it's your deal, he says, right? And right. Even though you're in a partnership, yeah, you and you may have a backup, but that backup is way far back. It's your deal. You, you have to show up in front of the partnership and give these updates, and you have to help the entrepreneur. Right. Uh, we've seen this once or twice as well. And by the way, we say co-founders. You know, there's anything that's going on with the company is your problem. Mm-hmm. You might be a product-oriented co-founder. There's a sales issue. Still your problem. Correct. Right. You bleed the company, and we find. The CEOs and the founders who start to externalize, right, and say, well, that's something else going on. There's somebody out there or the gods are conspiring to keep me down or, you know, any way or any moment when you start making those kinds of excuses, you're not exerting personal causal responsibility and yep. you've lost the plot. Yeah. Hey, let's go to the second clip. This is a good one um, where we ask Arthur, hey, what are you most proud of? Yeah. This was your let's question. Yeah, this, this was my was, question. Was yeah. a brilliant question. Yeah. It's a a beautiful answer. Here we go. I, I find the, the profession to be very satisfying in total because you, you literally get, I've always thought, I feel you're doing good 
uh, you're doing well by doing good every day. You know, you're, you're helping, uh, you know, you could be a teacher in a school or you could be working with your companies and trying to uh, teach entrepreneurs and give them all the things, tell them all the mistakes you've made so they don't spend our waste our money making the same mistakes. And uh, uh, so uh, that's very, so that's very satisfying. And, and then you're, you're creating all these jobs for so many people and creating interesting lives for them. And so, um, and you know, you're making out, uh, well yourself, but, but you feel that, um, you know, our, our whole, I believe our whole standard of living uh, is dependent on uh, the market system, free market systems and the entrepreneurs being a critical element of that. I mean, I think these big companies uh, just become so unproductive uh, that, you know, we'd, our standard of living in the country wouldn't be very good. It'd be like, you know, living in Russia almost if the big companies <laughs> had the only balls in town. And uh, I mean, not quite, but so I think that uh, this is this. Uh, I mean, you look at the, the the contribution of Silicon Valley, not just to the United States, to the whole world. And, uh, you know, the. The, the who were the greatest beneficiaries of, of globalization? Russia and China. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they haven't true. figured that out yet. But uh, um, and and Silicon Valley, uh, what are they doing? Just copying all the stuff from Silicon Valley. Yeah. And uh, so I think it's just it's a very satisfying uh, profession to be in. You know, the individual company can go up and down, and I, I definitely feel about better when they're going up than when they're going down. But yeah, fortunately, I got my, some marbles in each side, yeah. so uh, one's going up, that's going down. And- well, that's that is a lovely answer. It was important, I think, for our hive to hear that this from again somebody who is very appropriately lionized as, as a mega successful capitalist. Yes. I mean, and we certainly agree, right? Competitive markets in capitalism are the foundation mm-hmm. of free, fair, open societies. And we can't take that for granted. But it's, it's yeah, it's about wealth for yourself and, and your shareholders. But we are also importantly, like Arthur, we think trying to create wealth for families and, and, and societies. And it, it, it's probably the most nourishing part of the job. Absolutely. I think the, you know, we, we've said many times along the way that one of, the, one of the many reasons why we do what we're doing is to help people, one, to help people realize and do things that they even didn't think they were capable of. And in the process, yeah, make their lives better, create immense wealth for them and their families. Um, I, I find his response so um, grounded. You know, it's, it's, if you, if you, uh, look at it from one perspective, oh yeah, there's, oh, you know, you're so full of yourself, but it's, it's such an actualized response and such a practical response that if you look at the, and there's all this talk these days about Silicon Valley coming to an end and the, the big tech this and, and surveillance data that and, and all of that. And all those things are, are true, right? But if you look at the long arc, that's what he's talking about. That's right. If you look at the long arc, there's a lot of wealth and value and uh, innovation that's come out of Silicon Valley that's made the whole world that's right a much better place. And I think sometimes you know you and I are talking to young up and comers, and we find that they're a little squeamish when you ask them, "Hey, what do you want? Why are you doing this?" They're a little squeamish when it comes to talking about creating wealth. Mm-hmm. 
And you and I both, given our backgrounds, are careful to remind them, hey, don't ever apologize Mm -hmm. for wanting to create wealth for yourself and your family, right? If you come from humble circumstances, especially if you didn't grow up with a trust fund, or even if you did, I mean, but especially if you didn't, wealth matters, Mm -hmm. right? And so it is... uh, it is a really important part of, uh, of everything we try to do and, and build over here at Superset. And we're following, really, in, in the path that Arthur and others have established. Mm-hmm. Shall we turn our attention to the last question here? Let's do it. This was, is it problematic that venture funds are getting so big? Mm. Let's take a listen. <sighs> Thank you, Superset. That that's that uh, special edition from Tom is when he comes out of the nap room at Superset. <laughs> he naps a lot. Uh, for those naps of you who don't know, are very important. Mm-hmm. And for anybody listening, you better take a nap mm-hmm. when you're not making any sense in a meeting. I tell people, "Do you need a little nap? Because maybe 20 minutes, you can come back, and then you would make a little more sense than you're making right now." Mm-hmm. It's just an idea. <laughs> well, I think the 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 funds that have that have raised enormous amounts of money will be at a disadvantage in, um, in uh, doing good early-stage uh, investments. Uh, and I think what they have going for them is that they've got good franchises. And it's like I was talking before about um, how we, we had to take a distinct approach because we didn't have a built-up franchise, so we didn't have as good a supply. And so the funds like uh, Sequoia, example, have, uh, you know, it's, it's so valuable to a new company to get Sequoia's name on them, that they will continue to have a good supply at the, uh, um, at the front end there. And, uh, and uh, even, even if they let the team and the efforts kind of become diluted, um, I think the, the, somebody like uh, uh, KP neglected uh, their early stage uh, stuff to some extent. They got off on, on the on the clean tech, and uh, uh, so they didn't protect their franchise. But it's 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 hard to protect your franchise because it's so, it's so much harder to do this early stage uh, business than the later stage. So the people in the firm naturally gravitate to the easier uh, projects. So you have to keep renewing and getting a new people in there. So the the, you know, there's been an enormous explosion of early stage funds, though, underneath that. And uh, those guys, they may not have the franchise flow going for them, but they may be able to, with effort, like we did, uh, come up with approaches that sort of work to find more uh, good projects. And it's a competitive world out there. You know, <laughs> some guys got some advantages and, and disadvantages. And, and the question is, can you make the best of your of your advantages and, and diminish your disadvantages. And uh, I don't think, uh, um, no, no question that the, the Sequoia partner that's now got five houses and two yachts is not gonna be <laughs> rustling around Silicon Valley at seven o'clock in the morning <laughs> looking for the new deal. <laughs> so you, 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 so the newer and more energetic guy might be. Well, there you have it. Five yachts, two yachts, sorry, my bad. Five yachts, five houses and two yachts. That's a lot. That's a lot. How many yachts do you have? Me? No, we don't have to talk about it. 
on the podcast. That's a little too personal. I, I rescind that question. I have zero yachts. Uh, really? Uh, yeah. How many personal jets? Huh? How many personal jets? There's such a thing called a personal jet? Yeah. Your personal jet? Hello? Per- <laughs> oh, I like the whole plane dumb thing. I have Clever. no idea what you're talking about. Clever. Okay. That's a disavowal, people. Mm-hmm. So, look, I mean, I think there's a lot of uh, useful insight there. And it kind of, for me, dovetails back to the specialization point. Right when you get that big, you're allocating capital. Are you really in a lane? Are you really committed to the craft? Is there, are, are you generating IP that continue, continually feeds that sort of prepared bind approach? It's hard for me to see how you square both ends against the middle. Yeah, I think early stage investing is also there's a lot there's a correlation between early stage investing and non consensus investing. And when you're when you're like you're saying, allocating large amounts of money when you're doing when you're a big fund then it's hard to do non-consensus investing. Right. You end up doing consensus. Right. And therefore, you find it hard to do early stage. That's right. Well, listen, as we wrap up this uh, sort of best hits uh, from the, the interview with Arthur, by the way, in the next episode, there's yet more goodies that get a little more personal and focus on company building. So more coming. But as, as we wrap up this episode, Vivek, what are the biggies? What are the key takeaways? I think the first one is just this keeps coming back to grit and humility and uh, lack of ego, right? In yeah. that, that you just need to have as traits. Which we spent a lot of time talking about in previous podcasts. That's right. That's right. And uh, so, so, yeah, that was the one, that was the big thing for me. Right. And, and from the venture capital perspective, what we're hearing from Arthur is like, from that side of the table as well, you need yeah. You have to delay gratification. Mm-hmm. You have to stay curious and keep chiseling away at the thing because it's not going to happen as instantaneously as young urgent bucks would like it to. It's a long game. Yep, got to play it. That's right. What about tailwinds? There was a note in there about tailwinds. Yeah, too. and that we talked about that. We touched on that briefly earlier. It's that's the whole right place, right time uh, dynamic, right? Like you may have the perfect idea, but it may not be the right time for it. That's right. Because the business models are not set up correctly. The situation in the market is not set up correctly for whatever reason. Uh, so so you, you need to have tailwinds behind you to make the idea or your company successful. There you go. With that, um, let's call it a wrap. And again, in the next podcast, we're going to continue along these lines with snippets from the conversation with Arthur but with more focus on company building and with a little more attention to topics that we think are especially relevant to entrepreneurs. Yeah. Join us. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. 